0: Well, this next story really bothers me as a 20-year veteran of Wall Street, and that is analysts expect thousands of jobs on Wall Street will be replaced by technology. Uh, Lenan Newen, finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, and she has this story. So Lenan, we've heard these big financial services companies talk about the huge investments they're making in t- technology. That's really changing the culture of the financial services industry, isn't it?
2: That's right, Paul. It's a big womp womp on Wall Street this this morning. (laughs) Uh, Bonus culture is starting to disappear because the individual humans are not responsible for those kind of big blockbuster trades that you used to see maybe when you were on the street. So we're talking about algos and automated trading strategies that are really making the money here, which means that the individual humans don't get as much.
1: So does this just shift things to more of a salary
2: type of model? And have we seen that kind of uh, adaptation at this point? Yes. Yeah, so we've seen bonuses decline, first of all. And we've also seen more salary models at the same time as seeing the bonus kind of being considered as a group effort or team sport, as one of our sources says in the story.
0: Boy, back in the, I mean, just it was you know, 80% of my total compensation was the bonus and you started just kind of obsessing on it the day you come back from summer vacation in September, all the way through to year end jockeying for the number. But now it's I, I know it's changed. now again, a bigger percentage of total compensations in, um, in, in the salary, are they finding that they're able to attract the same quality of people?
2: And this is an interesting question, too, because the tech companies obviously want this kind of high quality right. yep. uh, quant talent as well. And so one of the things that used to be the saving grace on, on Wall Street was the bonus, right? Which is that the the banking industry could attract high talent because of the higher pay. But it seems like that's declining now. So that's, an, that's another question is whether they'll be able to attract the talent if the bonuses don't come up. So just
1: can you give us a sense of how widespread this is because typically the areas where the bonus has been uh, one of the biggest components is in say the trading side of things or uh the banking side of things we're actually getting deals done and you Trading, sure, there can be some uh, some automation there, uh, although not in every asset class. And on the banking side, same. I mean, you still have to complete the deal. So, where are we seeing uh, the most disappearance of this culture?
2: That's right, Lisa. And it's lumpy. It doesn't, uh, you know, it's not uniform. But I think in trading, the markets that are most electronic, so we're talking about equities, we're talking about foreign exchange, maybe slower is a bond market to kind of get up to speed in this. But the bond market eventually is going to go electronic as well, and so we're seeing more of this happen in the highly electronic automated markets. And it's across the buy side and the sell side as well.
0: Is this a good thing from a profitability perspective for the financial services firm if they can cut out some of these, you know, high cost uh, talent?
2: Uh, definitely that's one of the major catalysts behind this move is the cutting of costs, right? The ability to reduce headcount, reduce the number of people on the desk, reduce the bonuses that you pay in order to cut costs.
1: Although you have to think on the flip side, there's got to be some people saying that this could potentially hamper profitability and that it doesn't incentivize people to go out there uh, and obsess when they come in after summer break uh, and lose hair over the question of, of how much money they're going to make for the company.
2: That's right. If you eat what you kill, then you're pretty hungry, right? So you get out there and you try and pound the pavement, whereas um, in this model, maybe people are just collecting their salary.
1: Have there ever been studies that show how much that hunger adds to profitability versus uh, detract when it comes to risks that go awry? I'm not
2: sure, no, I don't think so. I'm not aware of
1: any, Well, it's but- interesting
0: because I think after the financial crisis, one of the, I mean, when you looked back to the financial crisis, a lot of regulators said it was the bonus culture that contributed to some of the behavior that we saw from a financial services firm grinding out bad deals just to grind out deals to get paid.
1: Yeah, but it was the bonus culture of who? Everybody in the firm, including the very top and the executive managers and the risk managers? I mean, at a certain point, if you have risk managers, they try to put a stop to that, but there has to be a a yin and a yang, right? Right. I mean, I I guess that I'm trying to figure out, you know, where this balance is and I'm trying to figure out how important that conversation is.
2: Exactly, it's really important. How do you motivate people and how to keep them hungry and aggressive and wanting to win while at the same time not allowing them to do things that are over the line? It's a really, really important question.
1: Lin-Ann Nguyen, thank you so much for joining us. It's a really interesting read and I'm sure uh, prompting a lot of angst (laughs) uh, across Wall Street uh, and beyond. But this is something, frankly, it's not just Wall Street, It's, it's a lot of industries. The concept of how does automation play with humans, how do people use it to their advantage. Uh, Yeah, go ahead. Not
0: surprisingly, guess what the top red story is on the Bloomberg terminal right now? (laughs) Linan story.
1: Yeah, all the algos really eagerly reading about their bonuses. Linan Nguyen, thank you so much uh, for being with us, finance reporter for Bloomberg News.
0: Well, in the world of global trade, Wednesday will be a big day. That is the day when the U.S. and China are set to sign the phase one trade deal. And we'll get a sense of what that means for retailers coming up with Rick Heffelbein. He's a former uh, chairman and president and CEO of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. So, Rick, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So if we get this trade deal, with, again, scheduled to be signed uh, this Wednesday, what does it mean for apparel makers, footwear makers, in this country, wow. well,
3: clearly, Paul, we're um, you know we're excited. They're meeting. We're exciting. They're signing a piece of paper. Of course, uh, it's 86 pages, and nobody's seen it yet, right. which is a little bit disturbing. From uh, everything that we've heard from uh, you know our insiders, uh, we're not particularly bowled over by this deal. As a matter of fact, we don't think it's going to help us at all, which is. Uh, a big concern for a whole host of reasons that are really simple to understand. Um they eliminated uh the December fifteenth tariff, which we never had. So eliminating something we never had is not of great value to us. The twenty-five percent that we've had for a couple months now on hats, handbags, and gloves, that sticks. That's Still there and the 15% that they hit us with on September 1 gets cut to seven and a half percent which in our humble opinion is seven and a half percent too much so we don't see any wins for our industry at this point in time we are um, justifiably upset for a whole host of reasons like you know is there going to be a phase two Uh, Are you know will talks go on what's the roadmap for getting rid of this
1: well I remember when you spoke with us uh, over recent months when you said that it would be an absolute disaster a death knell if the tariffs that were planned for December had gone into effect so on on a certain level that's good right they didn't go into effect
3: Well, they did and they didn't. Remember, uh, as an industry, we were, prior to the trade war, 6% of all imports coming into the United States, but we already paid 51% of all duties collected. So we are a highly tariffed industry. In America, the average tariffs before the trade war were 1.2%. Our average tariffs were about 12%.
1: Okay, well, just uh, what I'm trying to understand is going forward, uh, at least we have certainty... Right, because phase two isn't going to necessarily involve retail and tariffs again. Let's say it doesn't. Is that good enough? No, it's,
3: okay. not, it's, gotten a, it's not good enough because you're, you're essentially taxing us out of our prime source of supply. And that's what hurts because a huge... of all apparel coming into the United States comes from China. 69% of all footwear comes from China. 84% of all accessories. So what signing that deal does, it signs a mandate for us to get out of China. Okay, so we'll listen to the administration. We'll listen to the president. We'll get out of China. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? So in this first round, with all the agitation, people decided to stay there. We got through the holiday season by renegotiating, but all bets are off going into 2020. So prices have to go up. When prices go up, sales go down, and retail will end up in a funk. You know, we lost 77,000 jobs in retail last year. And retail, as everybody knows, is essentially two thirds of the economy, 10% or 12% of all jobs are in retail. So we look at this signing as a concrete step to tell us, okay, you better make other plans. And you know how long it takes to make other plans? Three to five years. So we're in trouble, we're hurting.
0: So Rick, what? Did your members, the apparel and footwear uh, retailers, what did they do? How did they deal with the higher tariffs Did they Try to pass along those price increases? Did it eat into their margin? What, what did you find so far? Well,
3: remember, I left AAFA at the end of the year, so right. I can tell you what my former members did right. and what they all did unilaterally was went over to China and said, look, We make our money in the fourth quarter of the year. Help us out. Work with us because we will have to absorb tariffs on inbound merchandise. So pretty much China worked with everybody. But they said, you know, one time deal. We'll get you through holiday. So in 2020, you're on your own.
1: I'm looking today at Five Below, which is a retailer that prices most of its goods at $5 or less. Uh, It fell the most since it went public in 2012. It had downgraded some of its forecasts. And it makes me think, particularly with respect to margins, these sort of lower income or the sort of uh, discount goods stores potentially have the most to lose. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Independent retailers and low price stores are the most at risk. There's more buying power the higher you go up the food chain. So, you know, certain retailers will do okay. They'll get around it, and certain retailers will suffer.
1: Can you give us a sense of the sort of scale here? I mean, in other words, how does that affect department stores, the Macy's of the world, or the...
3: It, it it affects them because of the huge quantity of merchandise that they bring in. They're reliant on their suppliers, and their suppliers don't have another place to go. So the big guys will get hurt. The question of what degree of how much hurt there will be in the in the plan. You will see it. You're gonna see earnings coming up. You know, everybody goes, holiday was great. You know, we did 3.4 to 4% increase. Maybe we did about $730 billion during the holiday season. Awesome. What about earnings? You know, everybody gets so excited about sales. What about earnings? Earnings reports are coming out in the next three weeks. You're gonna see how we did and
1: yeah. Well, the next time uh, my 10-year-old comes to me and says, I saw this watch and it was discounted by 80%. We got to buy it. I'm going to look at him and I'm going to say, what about the earnings? See, right. What about the earnings? And he'll he'll look at me and he'll say, oh my God, why are you my mother? Rick Halfenbein, thank you so much for being uh, with us. Rick Halfenbein, former chair and president and chief executive officer of the American Apparel and Footwear Association, joining us here in our interactive broker studios, a really timely discussion.
0: Well, 2019 was the everything rally. Markets across the world performing quite well. Asset classes performing uh, very well uh, in not just U.S. equities. The question is, what do you do for an encore uh, in 2020? Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco, uh, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio to share her thoughts. So, Christina, again, you just taking a look at the you know the S&P 500 up about 30% in 2019. Uh, bonds rallied. As you go into 2020, how do you think about an encore?
4: Well, I think we should expect modest returns for U.S. stocks. They had a really strong run-up in 2019, and I do believe there is certainly a bias to the upside just given very accommodative monetary policy, especially from the Fed. But I think leadership uh, will rotate. Uh, It will shift to the emerging market space for a few key reasons. First and foremost, we saw balance sheet normalization end back in September. And interestingly, that's when EM took off. EM outperformed the US in the fourth quarter. And in fact, China was a standout within the emerging market space. And I think a lot of that had to do with balance sheet normalization ending. Okay, balance sheet
1: normalization is one thing. Balance sheet re-expansion is another. And that's really what we saw, right? This isn't just normalization ending, this is, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to call it QE again, because I'll get absolutely lambasted on uh, Twitter, but uh, some sort of easing
4: through the expansion of the balance sheet. Well, that certainly has helped as well. But I think we can't overlook how much balance sheet normalization impacted emerging markets. It was creating a liquidity suck, so much so that the former uh, Reserve Bank of India governor, Urjit Patel, uh, had an op-ed piece in the Financial Times in June of 2018, essentially an open letter to the Fed saying, hey, please slow down balance sheet normalization, you're creating a liquidity suck that is impacting negatively emerging markets.
0: So Christina, as we think about the U.S. equity markets in 2019, mostly a story of multiple expansion, not much earnings growth. That really puts the pressure on 2020 for this market to deliver earnings growth. What do you think the outlook should be for investors for earnings growth?
4: Well, I think earnings growth will be rather modest, but I do believe because of how extraordinary the Fed's accommodative stances. Because the bar is so high on any kind of rate hike after three insurance cuts, uh, I do believe it's an environment where uh, risk assets benefit. And so there is some upside potential, even if you do have lackluster earnings. So let's talk about the main calls for 2020. It sounds like emerging markets will continue to get a lift from this dynamic. Is that right? Yes, but I would say we need to be selective within the emerging market space. So favor. Asia EM, in particular, Chinese equities, certainly benefiting from what all of EM is benefiting from in terms of the end of balance sheet normalization, more liquidity. Um, But in particular, Chinese equities should benefit from a phase one U.S.-China trade deal. Why aren't we
1: seeing more of a lift in the small and mid-cap shares, the Russell 2000, especially in light of the rally that we're
4: seeing in junk bonds? Well, because growth remains quite modest. And so this is an environment where investors are drawn to larger cap names and are drawn to secular growth. Uh, that, That doesn't mean that Secular growth is going to outperform for the full year that doesn't mean that large caps are going to outperform for the full year I think we'll get short periods of time sort of bursts in which um, Smaller cap names more cyclical names perform well in 2020 But I do think when we look back on the year in full that Secular growth tends to outperform and larger cap tends to outperform because growth is rather modest
0: All right Let's say that I'm concerned about valuation. One of the sectors that screams out as cheap as energy. Is there any reason to dip my toe in the energy space?
4: Well, you always want to be well diversified, and that includes some exposure to energy. Can you imagine if she just said no? (laughs) I think a lot of people are saying. Yeah, it's like, nah, forget it. And if one were to assume that uh, the U.S.-Iran conflict uh, does not end today, and in fact has some sort of legs, um, that's another rationale for having exposure to to some energy stocks. Um, But I do believe in the grand scheme of things, uh, energy is not going to perform as well as other sectors like technology. I was reading an article this morning about how
1: the dollar, uh, which is kind of a key component when we talk about everything from commodities to emerging markets, uh, that the dollar has not served as the haven that it once has, and that during bouts of uh, geopolitical turmoil or other issues like what you mentioned with Iran and the U.S., the dollar hasn't necessarily rallied to the degree that you would expect. Do you buy that argument? I mean, this sort of feeds into the whole dollar weakening uh, kind of concept and the U.S. losing its clout in the
4: international community, at least with respect to the currency. Do you buy that? I think there's some truth to that argument. We certainly have seen gold as a safe haven asset class of choice, as well as the Japanese yen. So I think that is true. And I think there are a variety of reasons why. But certainly one of them is a desire on the part of some countries to move away from the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency of choice.
0: Wednesday is a fairly big day for those global trade folks. We're going to get that phase one deal. Signed. We don't know what the deal is. I guess we haven't seen anything. But is that all the market needs? Is just to see this thing kind of taken off the table?
4: I think the market certainly will benefit from this issue being taken off the table. Now we have to recognize that this does not end risks when it comes to trade, because if a phase one deal is signed uh, between the U.S. and China, it could mean that the U.S. then turns its sights on Europe and embarks on uh, more in the way of trade wars with the EU, which could be quite problematic.
1: Who suffers most, Germany?
4: Yes, I think Europe suffers, Germany in particular suffers in an environment like that, especially if we were to see tariffs applied to European autos, which I think would be the 800 pound gorilla in the room.
1: Yes, that's, that's what I was thinking. I mean, we hear about the wine tariffs, and yes, I know a yeah. lot of people, uh, Tom Keen included. Wine and cheese, yes. Wine and cheese, it's it's very upsetting, the idea that, that the cost of wine might go up, but it really is all about cars, right? I it mean, is, that's ultimately it is. That's the that's
4: the big danger, and that's the giant hammer that the US wields uh, with the EU.
1: Christina Hooper, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Christina Hooper is Chief Market Strategist at Invesco, uh, talking about the market outlook. And- lines surrounding hedge funds tend to be somewhat conflicted. On one hand, you have underperformance when it comes to total returns when compared uh, versus the S&P 500. On the other, assets continue to climb to all-time high records, even though you have withdrawals. Joining us now to break it all down and get a sense of what to expect in the year ahead is Don Steinbrugge. He's managing partner at Agecroft Partners based in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Don, thank you so much for being with us. Can we just start there in terms of what you're expecting this year uh, with flows for hedge funds?
5: Yeah. So last year there were uh, net redemptions of about three percent to the industry, but the average hedge fund was up about nine percent. So industry assets were up six. I think you know industry assets have gone up ten in the last eleven years. I think they're going to go up again. Uh, In 2020, I think the uh, amount of redemptions is going to be less this year than last year. A lot of that is due to the fact that interest rates are so low, and I think you're going to see some major institutions take some money out of their fixed income allocation, shift it into either uncorrelated hedge fund strategies, or potentially start buying hedge funds within their fixed income portfolio like direct lending, specialty finance, structured credit, distressed debt.
0: So Don, it's interesting, you know, I look at the hedge fund business, my personal opinion is, is the long short equity business kind of peaked in 2006. And if you look at performance, you know, it's really been disappointing. How can the hedge fund industry writ large continue to attract capital when it underperforms?
5: Well, I agree with you that long-short equity did peak a number of years ago. A lot of long-short equity managers have had a difficult time. You've seen a lot of money come out of long-short equity and go into other hedge fund strategies. But I think the reason that... Uh, hedge fund assets are at an all-time high. It's because most of the money going into the hedge fund industry is into other strategies that help uh, diversify a portfolio. You know, you have these very large pension, endowments, foundations that can't be 100% in equity, and they are loaded up in equity. When you combine public equity, private equity, real estate equity. So they're, you know, they're, one of their main choices is investing in fixed income, and outside the U.S., rates are close to zero. In the U.S., the aggregate's about 2.2%. So they're looking at diversifying away from fixed income into hedge fund strategies, and they're not looking at outperforming the S&P. They're looking at generating kind of a, a mid-to-high single-digit uncorrelated return across a diversified list of uh, strategies.
2: It's interesting
1: to me that direct lending is among those that you mentioned, because How is that a hedge fund area? Isn't that more the the sort of closed-end fund, kind of uh, long-term hold to maturity, get involved with the company if you need to kind of strategy?
5: Well, I would say that the lines. So, hedge funds are a fund structure. You know, hedge funds are an open-end fund that have different type of liquidity provisions. Private equity is more of a drawdown structure where you hold assets and then you pay it out over a number of years. And the difference between hedge funds and private equity are are very gray. And there are a number of hedge fund organizations that are coming out with um, private equity structures or they're coming out with uh, hedge fund structures that have very limited liquidity. So, you know, again, I think it depends what your definition of hedge fund is. A lot of hedge funds are broadening out their product lineup.
0: When I was uh, looking at the hedge fund business back in the day, it was about delivering absolute returns above and beyond the market uncorrelated. This whole argument about I'm going to give you mid-single-digit uncorrelated returns is totally a new pitch by the hedge fund industry, in my opinion. Don, how about the day's when a big trader from Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, you know, has a great 10-year run and then decides to go out and raise a billion or $2 billion? Is that still possible today?
5: I think it's very, very difficult. You you have a couple very high-profile launches uh, in the hedge fund industry, but the amount of launches has gone down significantly. And you have two different dynamics. I mean, one is that the costs of running a hedge fund have gone up significantly. You need a lot more infrastructure. Uh, in addition to that, you have a huge squeeze on fees. So the break-even level from an asset standpoint has gone up a lot. A lot of these new hedge fund launches are offering founder's share for the first 100 million of assets that are about 50% of the normal fee. So business is becoming much more competitive. I think you're going to see less and less launches over time. And I think you're going to see a consolidation of the number of hedge funds in the industry over time.
1: Where are we in terms of hedge funds turning into family offices?
5: Well, you know, there's been some very high-profile stories uh, about a few hedge funds that have closed down, decided to, you know, give their money back. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is there's an arms race for alpha. You know, you got to come continually up your game. And a strategy that worked 10 years ago doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work today. So you do have some high profile managers that are closing down, but a lot of those are closing down because they haven't had good performance over the past 5 years. They're suffering redemptions. So, you know, there's some very successful hedge fund managers that made you know, a billion dollars uh, by generating great returns a decade ago, no longer generating good returns and are deciding to convert to family offices.
0: Hey, Don, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your thoughts on the hedge fund business. Don Steinbrueger, managing partner for HCOF Partners, based in the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia.